0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. I'm your host, Jonah Saller. And for those of you who are new, this is a podcast where we discuss theology from various perspectives, striving for ecumenical unity. If you want to find a way to support this ministry, you can click the link below to my Patreon page, and there you can sign up for as little as $5 a month. And I'm going to give you stuff in return for your support. So anybody who's willing to do that, I need the support to continue to make this content. That would be great. Thank you so much. Now with that being said, let's get into today's episode. So I had a a few different ideas on what I was going to talk about today. And uh, one of those ideas is actually going to be made into a video for next week as opposed to a podcast due to just some technical difficulties that would have been complicated with both an audio and video track. So today I'm going to be talking about why I'm not Roman Catholic, and the reason that I want to address this is because one of the criticisms that I've received as I have continued to develop my theology and grow in my theology is the, cri- the criticism that I'm becoming too Catholic, that I'm falling into the lies of Rome, I'm being deceived by the Roman doctrines. And a lot of these uh, critiques have come from, I I would call them, more extreme Protestants, Protestants that um, lack a desire to be in continuity with historic Christianity. And unfortunately, this is a, I guess you could call it a common thread in Protestantism, where a lot of mainstream evangelical Protestants are so opposed to Rome and they've found their identity in opposing Rome that, that that's what it means to be a Protestant. If we're not opposed to Rome, we're not Protestant. And've they've, they've, they've dug themselves so deep into that that if anybody takes good things from historic Roman Catholicism and tries to introduce them or um, use them in conjunction with the the wonders of the Reformation, people view that as a step down the path of heresy. So I I reject that. I reject the claims that it is wrong to take things from Rome and to try to be in continuity with a lot of the things you find in Rome. But on the flip side of that, I also want people to recognize that I am not Roman Catholic. And I'm not Roman Catholic for good reasons, I feel. And so I want to share some of those reasons in this podcast with you. And as I do, I also just want, I want us all to uh, just pray together that despite the disagreements that we may have amongst ourselves, that we would all strive for unity with one another. That Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants of all different colors and stripes would come together in seeking the oneness that Christ prayed for. For those of you who have been following my channel for a while, this is one of my highest and most uh, poignant desires that the church would be one. Christ prayed for it, and I think we have a an obligation and a duty to strive in that direction. So, with all that being said, um, I, I want to share why I'm not Roman Catholic, and and really the first reason is that I'm in love with the Reformation. I'm in love with the Reformation. When I look at the abuses that the Reformers brought out that was that was taking place within this medieval Roman Catholicism, I can't help but be overjoyed at the stand that these Reformers took, taking the Scriptures, translating them into the vernacular of the people, putting it in the hands of the laity. That is something that to me is so important and so valuable. And if and I think we really have to ask the question had these cause because obviously we can look at Roman Catholicism today and say, well, the laity now does have the scriptures, and it is in the translation of the people. And even with the Norvis Ordo, right? You have this new. Um, mass that is done in the vernacular of the people. It's no longer just in Latin. And so you see a lot of these reforms that did end up taking place in Rome. But I think we need to ask a fundamental question. Would that have happened had not the Reformation started? And I think it's a valid question because I think Rome would like you to think that it would have happened. But I'm not as sure. I'm not as optimistic in that realm. And I believe that the Reformation was fundamental in, in, in uh, bolstering um, the changes that we do see Rome adopting today. And so Vatican II, I think, was inspired by the Reformation, really, truly. And without the Reformation, I'm not sure that Vatican II would have happened. Now, there are Catholics who reject Vatican II, who don't think it was a good thing for the church. I personally think it was great. I think that what they were trying to do is ultimately trying to reform the church closer to what the Reformation had strived to do in the first place. And so I believe that now it's much harder for me. And the reason that I don't think of Rome as a false church, and many Protestants critique me for that, is because I believe that Rome has taken positive steps to reform the church. And I believe that Luther would have been very pleased with where Rome is right now. I'm not perfect. There are still reasons I'm not Roman Catholic, but I do think that Rome has been taking steps towards that Reformation, and my hope is that they continue to do that so that there could be a greater unity between Protestants and Roman Catholics. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that I believe the Reformation was an essential step in moving the church forward in the direction of Reformation. And so had the Protestant Reformers not taken the stand that they did, Where would the church be today? Would the laity be receiving both the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist? Would the laity be reading the scriptures in their own language? I'm not sure that the answer is yes. And so for that reason, that is a huge part of why I am committed to the Protestant cause. Because I believe Protestantism took a stand where nobody else was on some essential and core things. So I I like to refer to myself as a Reformed Catholic because I love the Catholic faith, but I love the Reformation. And to me, Christianity finds its fullness at the moment in this Reformed Catholicism. Um, And I think a church that is not willing to reform is a church that ultimately is not willing to listen and follow the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is, is working in and through his people and sanctifying us. We need to remember that sanctification is a process. And so if there's a church who is not submitting to the reality that sanctification means reform, then I find it hard to believe that that, that, that church is full of the Holy Spirit, or at the very least, is that church listening to the Holy Spirit. And I believe in medieval Catholicism, you see a church that was stagnant, that wanted to stay exactly where it was and go no further. And it was the Protestant reformers who recognized the need for sanctification. And I think that we can almost use reformation and sanctification interchangeably in this case because what the Protestant reformers were trying to do was to sanctify the church, to bring the church into a fuller conformity to Catholic teaching, a deeper devotion to, to the apostolic deposit. And so I'm very committed to that and upholding that value and that value system. And I think that um, it would be wise for Roman Catholics to recognize, and I I do believe some of them are, but recognize that the Protestant Reformation was a necessary thing. It was a non-negotiable. Because if the church did not have these brave men stand up to point out the errors that were starting to, to, to manifest themselves, we have to answer the hypothetical question, where would the church be today? And I can't imagine it would have been in a good place. Furthermore, I think when you just look at um, separating from Roman Catholicism, but you just look at Protestantism broadly, <clears throat> the gospel spread through Reformed theology is absolutely remarkable. The KJV, translated, the first really Bible that was translated and widespread and got widespread use. We could talk about the Geneva Bible as well, but the King James Bible, vernacular of the people, read and distributed. You have England that became largely a Protestant church. Um, you have the the Puritans who who took the gospel and with their efforts, and they were just powerhouse preachers, powerhouse evangelists that brought the gospel, um, into the lives and into the, um, really the hearts of the people they were preaching to. They took the gospel and rather than make it something that was, um, this lofty place of authority where only a certain group of people can understand it. And you come to receive it from these people who are on a different playing field, The Puritans, I think especially, even the playing field and said, listen, we're all, we are all sinners that have fallen short. All of us need the the grace of God. All of us are on the same level. We are all priests of God. We are all saints of God. And we are all sinners in need of a savior. And I think that Protestantism did a great job at kind of destroying some of the corruption that came about through this hierarchical system. Now, I'm a firm believer in the, the, the um, Episcopal form of government, right? Bishop, priest, deacon. But that being said, there needs to be a recognition that while these roles are set apart for a specific purpose within the church, these roles do not bring somebody into a level that is above the laity. We, I, a priest is no greater than I when it comes to standing before the throne of God. A bishop is no greater than I when it stand, when it comes to standing before the throne of God. At the end of the day, when we stand before the throne of God, the only thing that's going to count is whether or not we are clinging to the cross of Christ and his perfect righteousness. Nothing else is going to matter. And so um, I think Rome had a kind of a hierarchical system where these roles were not seen as set apart for a specific purpose, but set apart and elevated into a position that was above the laity. And so I think Reformed Theology, Puritans, uh, Church of England, um, Calvin, um, Luther, they brought out the reality that we are all one in Christ Jesus on the same playing field, uh, laity and clergy alike. And so I just, there, there is so much that I love about Reformed Theology. I'm using the, the term Reformed broadly to just represent um Lutheranism, uh, Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, all of these different forms that I, I think there's so much beauty and so much rich theology within these traditions that we need to, we need, we need as an essential part of Christianity. And so like, I mean, just think about it. There are so many people that don't, that have never read Calvin, that have never read Luther, they've never read even somebody like Zwingli, Right. And my challenge is, like, read these people. I don't agree with everything Calvin says. I don't agree with (laughs) a lot of what Luther says. And I certainly don't agree with a lot of what Zwingli says. But when you read these reformers, I'm edified by reading them. There are things that I learn from them. I think Calvin has one of the most robust uh, theologies when it comes to the Holy Spirit that you'll find. Uh, and later i think that you can see john owen has an even like a crazy robust theology of the holy spirit and you look at this and and i just go i am i am better off as a christian for have reading for ha- uh, i i'm better off as a christian having read these men i'm better off as a christian knowing the theology that these men um, produced and, and I think that when we, when we look at that, we can recognize if I was a Roman Catholic, I would be trained intrinsically not to pay attention or to learn from these reformers. Because these reformers are the ones who have abandoned the true church of God, have gone and created dogmas and heresies. So don't, don't listen to what they have to say. And if you read them, read them critically. Now, I, I agree that we should read things critically, but when you're trained to read people or not read people simply because they are not part of the one true church, I know for a fact that if I was in that position, I would be missing out on some incredible, incredible theology. Some incredible theology. And so that's, that's point one, is I'm, I'm committed to Reformed Catholicity. Um, and I'm I'm committed to upholding that and encouraging the church to continue to reform itself, to continue to to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as it sanctifies the people of God. Now, the the second reason, and this and this reason is is just as important as the first, and that's the papacy. Now, I have studied the papacy. I've read books on the papacy. I've read as many of the early church fathers and their writings on the papacy that I can. I made a video on the papacy. And no matter where I, no matter what I read and what I study, I still just cannot, I cannot find a good, solid argument that convinces me that one man is the head of the church in a position where at times he can speak infallibly for the church. I just don't see that. And I don't see that in the early church writings. I see that there's an emphasis on Rome and, uh, and on the bishop of Rome being the patriarch of the West. But I don't see anything more than a first among equals attitude with the papacy. Definitely not infallibility. There was an understanding that, that, that Rome is kind of this centralized place that when we are in communion with, we can call ourselves and be part of this, this church that has a central location. But the central location of Rome for the early church, to me, does not translate to all of a sudden the bishop is granted infallibility and the bishop is now the head of the church. And I think that the Orthodox, they see this too. I mean, part of why they left the church, or split from Rome, I should say, part of why they did that was over the Filioque Clause that was added to the Creed. And this was added by the Western Church, under the authority of the Bishop of Rome. And Orthodoxy, they recognized this as being an overstep. You can't just add something to the creed. And unfortunately, this led to, in my opinion, the greatest tragedy that has ever happened to the Christian church. The splitting between East and West. And the East has incredible theology, like really beautiful, profound theology that we as Westerners are largely missing out on because we have had that split. And yet, that split originated from an overreach on the part of the papacy. And so, I have a strong conviction that while we can acknowledge a central authority, and while I do agree with the early church that it is good to be in communion with Rome, I really do think that I think it's undisputable that there was a there was a strong conviction in the early church that being in communion with Rome was an extremely important part of being a unified, visible, unified body. However, with the Orthodox, I agree that when you reach a point where there is an overstep of authority, and now when you have the Pope granted papal infallibility, until that changes, I cannot in good conscience be a part of that communion because I would be having to submit myself under the authority of a bishop that I do not believe has the level of authority that he does. I'm all for being in communion with Rome. I long to be in communion with Rome, but I don't believe that we as Protestants in good conscience can be in communion with Rome while they hold the level of authority they do and they grant to the papacy. I just think it would be irresponsible for Protestants to just jump ship and go, and go. well, it's important to be in communion with Rome, so we'll go in communion with Rome. Because once you do that, you are submitting yourselves to the reality, and you're ultimately saying that I agree with the, the way things are. I agree that this one man has the authority that he has and is the head of the church. And I simply just don't find that to be historically accurate. I mean, there were councils that met that made ecumenical decisions that the bishop of Rome was not invited to. That he was not present at. And so when we look at that, we go, okay, if this was if there was a standing under there was a long standing understanding that the Bishop of Rome was the head of the church and ultimately had the final authority over doctrine and matters of faith, then why is he not invited to this council? And if he is invited, why is he not the central role and the, the central leader at these councils? And I haven't found a great answer from any who have addressed that. And so to me, as Protestants, we should have a deep desire to be in communion with Rome, as I do think the early church teaches that as being a part of, what, a part of how the church is visibly recognized. But with that being said, we also need to recognize that until there is a change and a reversion back to the original understanding that the the Bishop of Rome is the Patriarch of the West, but not infallible and not the head of the church to such a degree that he is above the rest of the bishops, then I don't think we can in good conscience become Roman Catholics. Um, and I look at Orthodoxy, right? They have their their patriarchs. Um, and and even, even in Anglicanism, we have our archbishops, right? But these people even though they are a central head, they are not in a position of authority above anybody else. The College of Bishops has to gather and they have to decide things together, unified together, all on the same playing field. Not with one man that can be um, the, the tiebreaker, so to speak. And I think that until the papacy realizes that and submits itself to that reality um I think it's an overreach a huge overreach of of church authority as it was um, intended um, and I mean even looking at Peter right Peter allowed James to have the authority at the Council of Jerusalem James was the one who ultimately was the spokesperson and there are arguments well James was the bishop there and you know Peter wasn't wasn't going to try to take the authority away from from James. But I think it still stands that there was a mutual gathering and a decision that was made, and Peter was not the centralized authority in that particular instance. So I don't think that you can say that that understanding is found in Scripture, nor do I think you can uh, say that the modern understanding of the papacy is found um, within modern Roman Catholic, uh, or early Catholicism. So that's point two. Third reason that I'm not a Roman Catholic um, is the issue of justification. Surprise, surprise to everybody who thinks that I don't hold to justification by faith. (laughs) And, And really, the issue boils down to this. When it comes to justification, what keeps me justified? Christ or my righteous living? I think that's a very basic question. What keeps me justified? Christ or my righteous living? And in Roman Catholicism, my righteous living is what keeps me justified. Now, we as Protestants would agree with Rome that initial justification is by faith alone. Rome would agree with us there. There's nothing we can do to merit initial justification. Nothing we can do at all. It's simply an act of faith and we are justified. However... Now that we've been infused with righteousness, we must live righteous lives. And if we fail to do that, if we commit a mortal sin, then we have forsaken and forfeited our justification, and we need to go to the sacrament of confession in order to be restored and re-justified. Now, what this does is it places the emphasis on righteousness on the individual and not on Christ. Now I'm a proponent that justification is a reality brought to the present that is contingent upon our endurance in faith. But the endurance in faith is not our righteous living so that when we get to heaven, we will have the merit to show God that we have lived in the way that he has called us to live. No, I believe that when we arrive at the judgment seat of Christ, the only thing that's going to matter on judgment day is whether or not we are in Christ. And being in Christ is going to result in a vibrant faith that works through love, that brings us to completion, that we endure in until the end. But that faith, even though it manifests itself and works as a necessary part of it, And in that sense, works are part of this justification that we look forward to that is brought into the present. But the reality is, on Judgment Day, it is not the works that we do that justify. It is our union with Christ and being found in Him. And in Roman Catholicism, the emphasis is taken off of this union with Christ and placed on the holy living of the individual. To such an extent that a mortal sin takes you away from Christ. It it severs your justification. Now, if I can sin and sever my justification, then my justification was never rooted in Christ to begin with. Because Christ cannot fail. I can fail. And I would agree that if I fail and live in unrepentant sin and continue in that, then I am forfeiting my salvation, then I am forfeiting my justification but sin that is followed by repentance and mourning and a desire for holiness. You cannot say that that immediately severs somebody from Christ. Now, I have committed in the past what Catholics would consider mortal sin, but I have never once felt as though the Spirit of God has left me. And I think that that's a really dangerous thing to indicate to people that their mortal sin, the Spirit of God, is removed from them. They are severed from Christ. Because when when you immediately sin and it's followed by this grief, as a Christian, that should be a great encouragement to us. That when we grieve in our souls following sin, it is evidence that the Spirit is there to restore us. I think that orthodoxy has a very good view when it comes to these like these divisions that Catholicism makes between mortal and venial sin. Orthodoxy would look and say, listen, mortal sin and venial sin, you can't separate sin as though this kind separates you from God and this kind, you know, it's, it's bad, but God kind of goes, eh, just a little purgatory will take care of that. In the orthodox mind... All sin is damaging to the human person, but sin is like a disease. And rather than seeing God in a purely judicial sense, God is seen as a physician. So in orthodoxy, this disease of sin, it erodes at us and eventually can destroy the charity within us. But when we sin... It is to bring us, it should as a Christian, the spirit within us should bring us to the physician where we find healing from it. In a Roman Catholicism, I think there's a, there's a painting of God that is made that paints him out to be simply a judge that's waiting for us to screw up so that he can slam the gavel down and say guilty. And until we come to him with our penance and our mourning, And we confess these things to a priest. God is not going to declare us in the right. And brothers and sisters, I think it's very, very difficult to find any way around the fact that this places the entire emphasis upon the living of the righteous living of the individual. Where is Christ in this? Where is Christ in this? In Protestantism, Christ is the central part of justification. We are justified by our union to him, being united to his death, his resurrection, his righteousness. And if I am united to those things, it will produce in me a necessary fruit. It will produce in me a necessary faith working through love. But when I stand before the throne of God, it is not the amount of failure that I have, nor is it the amount of merit that I have. It is whether or not I am found to be in his son. And so to me, this is such an important part of the Christian faith and of justification. And do, do, do our works complete our justification? Yes, they do, as James says, but our works do not complete it in a sense of being detached from union with Christ. Why do our works complete our justification? Because our works show us to be united to Christ. And in showing us to be united to Christ, our justification is realized. But it is not that our works contribute to our justification in so much as it is dependent upon them. And once you take that step, I do believe that you are very, very close to distorting and destroying the gospel. And so, for that reason, I am not a Roman Catholic. Fourth, non-essential dogmas that the Catholic Church turns into essential dogmas, and I specifically, I, I would look at the Marian dogmas as being a very strange thing. Um, but there are there are multiple examples of this. Indulgences, for example, it's still going on in the Catholic Church today. But like you look at the Marian dogmas the Immaculate Conception, the perpetual virginity of Mary, Mary the Mother of God, um, the, the bodily assumption of Mary. And the Catholic Church dogmatized these. In other words, you cannot be a Roman Catholic Christian. You cannot be a true member of the body of Christ if you do not affirm that Mary was sinless, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she was bodily assumed into heaven. Now, that's very problematic to me, because these are things that are, first of all, not clear from Scripture. Now, personally, I hold to the Marian dogmas. I'm tentative on the Immaculate Conception, but I lean towards holding to it. But just because I hold to these dogmas does not mean that I believe that it is an essential part of my salvation. By no means. By no means at all. And so this should be a matter of conscience for an individual. It's one thing for the church to teach it. It's another for the church to say that you, as an individual, have to believe it. Because this is just not a salvation issue. And as a Protestant, I do believe that all things necessary unto salvation are contained in the Holy Word of God. And so if there is something that cannot be shown from the Word of God, clearly that is, that is a, a an essential element of somebody's salvation, then I find that to be very problematic and troubling. So I think the Catholic Church, they have these essential dogmas that they've made that, uh, that are essential when they really are non-essentials. God is not going to judge somebody when they come to his throne. He's not going to ask them, did you hold to the perpetual virginity of Mary? And if they go, well, no, he's going to go, well, sorry, doesn't matter that you had faith in my son. I find that to be very problematic. And so non-essential dogma made essential is another reason I'm not a Roman Catholic. I believe things like the Marian dogmas, purgatory, etc. cetera, those things need to be left up to an individual and their conscience and their convictions when it comes to scripture and should not be enforced as a chur- from a church. It can be encouraged. I believe a church has every right to encourage its congregants to hold to things like the Marian dogmas, but it can't force them. In the same way, like uh, eschatology, for example. Now, I'm a post-millennialist, and I believe that everybody would be better for being a post-millennialist. And yet, if I ever end up in a position of leadership at a church, which I pray to God that I will, I would never, ever tell people that they have to be a post-millennialist to be saved. Now, I would encourage people, this is what I believe Scripture very plainly teaches, this is in, ca- in continuity with the historic church, etc. But not for a moment would I tell people that their salvation is dependent upon something like that. So neither should we be telling people that their salvation is dependent upon what they affirm about Mary. So that's another reason I'm not... Roman Catholic. And and now I come to the final reason. And there are there are more than this, but these are the main reasons. The final reason comes down to the, the this topic of ecumenical unity, which I brought up at the very beginning of this episode. I believe that the church should be one. And what Roman Catholicism does is because it makes the claim that it and it alone is the one true church founded by Christ, it makes all ecumenical dialogue dependent upon the acceptance of that. And I just don't find that to be ecumenical. Now, I can't fault the Roman Catholic Church from considering itself to be the one true church, but I can point out that it is an anti-ecumenical assertion. And I believe it, al- it also takes a very simplistic view of the church and of God's work. Because if I look at Rome and I go, this is the only true church. All of these other churches are false churches. They're not real. They're not really churches. I cannot, I cannot truly say that with a good conscience, because when I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ from various denominations, and I see God working in their lives... In such profound ways. I can't look at that and go. Yeah that's all just. That's all just fake stuff. (laughs) Like it is so clear. That the Holy Spirit is active. And working in other denominations. Like an example of this. uh, Many of you know my friend Andrew Davis. He's a Baptist. I disagree with a lot. A lot a lot of Baptist theology. But Andrew is probably one of the godliest men that I know. He is constantly serving and striving to love the Lord. He is such an honorable and upright man. And I look at him and I go, he has the spirit of God living within him. And I just, my heart yearns for that. And I am so edified and uplifted in speaking to him. And so I look at that and I go, here is somebody that I disagree with heavily on a lot of theology, but the spirit of God is so at work in his life that I cannot, I cannot look and say that he is not part of the church. And yet Rome would say that. Rome would say that about my brother. Rome would say that about me. Rome would say that about many of you. Now, Vatican II kind of updated some of the more aggressive language to say that we are separated brethren, but it still stands that even though we're separated brethren, the word separated indicates that we are brethren that are outside of the truth. We are outside the fullness of the faith. And the question I would have for Roman Catholics is, have you ever considered that you do not possess the fullness of the faith. And there is something that you can learn from your Protestant brothers and sisters, or even your Orthodox brothers and sisters. And so I, I think I just have a much wider view of the church. I do not believe that the church is one specific body. I believe that Christ prays extensively for the oneness of the church. And I believe that oneness is a visible unity and I believe that we should be striving for a visible unity under a, a, a one common communion. But I don't believe that we should be doing that at the expense of recognizing that we need to re-examine ourselves, our doctrine... And, and find unity in discussion and be willing to make sacrifices. And I think that Rome, very much, based on the claims that they make about the papacy, about their being, them being the one church, that they're the preservers of the truth, I think that there's an understanding in Rome that we can have ecumenical dialogue, but that ecumenical dialogue stops short of changing ourselves. We will talk to you, but ultimately we must talk to you in order to convince you to join us. And I would simply ask if it could ever be the other way around. Would Rome consider changing themselves? Would they consider changing the authority of the papacy? And I recognize that in order for them to do that, they would have to give up a lot of their infallible claims. But in doing so, we just might find a deeper unity. Because I do believe, as a Protestant, that you can hold to the Scriptures being the ultimate authority while also holding to the Church having an infallible authority, a derivative infallibility, but an infallible authority. And I believe that this is compatible with Protestantism, with the Protestant cause. Have Protestants taken things f- way too far? Yes, I do believe so believe sola scriptura has become a just horrific doctrine. But I also believe that the magisterium has become a horrific abuse of authority as well. And so in the pursuit of ecumenical unity, I cannot in good conscience become a Roman Catholic because in becoming that, I would have to make claims and, and assert things about the church and the nature of the church that would take a position that would look down upon my Protestant brothers and sisters and Orthodox brothers and sisters as being outside of the faith, at least in its fullness. And I would say that, well, we can admit that there are there is a fullness of the faith and there are those who are not experiencing it. For example, I believe those who have a memorialist view of the Eucharist, they are not experiencing the fullness of the faith. Nevertheless, I don't believe them to be outside of the church, if that makes sense. So those are my top five reasons that I'm not a Roman Catholic. Um, and, and I think it's important to show that while I do defend a lot of Catholicism, and I do defend the, the Catholic faith throughout history, I also recognize, and I hope that you guys can recognize, that I'm still a Protestant for a reason. And I think that those are good reasons. And uh, as I close, I just want to say, let us pray for the unity of the church. Let us pray that the church comes together um, and that through coming together, the oneness that Christ prayed for would be realized and it would be realized in a way that, that brings about a great testimony to the nations that they might turn, repent, believe, be baptized and enter into communion with the Catholic church. And ultimately, union with Christ himself. And so with that, I thank you so much for watching. Um, Again, become a Patreon. um, Support what I'm doing. That helps me out a lot. Um, I'll talk to you guys next time.